I think that's one of the greatest gifts that like at on-site we get to do where we get to have enough space. But mostly what I'll do out there is lead intensives. Mm-hmm. And when you're, when you're out there leading intensives, you get three or four days just you one-on-one with a client. And so you get this space to really like let them completely unpack their whole journey, mm-hmm. their whole story. And they really get to, for the first time, name like, oh yeah, that was hard as a kid. Right, yeah. That yeah. was really hard that I didn't maybe get the significance that I was longing for. Mm-hmm. I didn't get the attention or approval or or love. And I had kind of didn't know it, but I had been sort of blaming myself this whole time that yeah. that was kind of, I was the common denominator in that. Mm-hmm. And so you get to really walk slow with clients through that and unpack that and then there's always this really beautiful shift that happens. I will often say like, yeah, it's not blame and shame, but it's name and claim. Mm-hmm. Right? That's that we good. yeah, that we get to like but still like who is going to get to mm-hmm. name that for that little boy but you. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vo. Hey friends, this week on the Living Centered Podcast, I am excited to introduce you to our guest, Brendan McCarthy. He's an incredible therapist, a husband, a dad, and an on-site guide. Brendan has been doing intensives at OnSite for over six years, and he is a master at helping people dive deep into their stories to find the most authentic parts of themselves that maybe they lost along the way. The conversation took some really interesting turns as we talked about grappling with the stories that we carry from our childhood. We also talked about the power of not blaming, but naming and claiming so that we can make sense of our stories. We at OnSite often challenge the notion that we shouldn't dwell on the past because we believe if we don't go back and make sense of the past, the past will dwell in us. And so throughout the conversation, Brendan shared his own story about a childhood spent seeking significance, the work he's done to reclaim and name the hard parts of his story, and how he's finding redemption in being a dad, being able to speak into his son and give him the gifts that he never had. Brendan also walked us through this really interesting concept called the seven rights of a child. It's the seven things we all needed to receive for emotional and psychological development and how if we don't receive them, it's going to show up in our lives as an adult and really continue to impact us. It's fascinating. I hope you enjoy this conversation and you love getting to know our friend, Brendan. So Brendan, we're so excited to sit down with you. I had an idea of where I wanted to start. But now that we've had this really warm conversation, I've completely really thrown you off. Yeah, yeah. you really have. I have no Keeping idea. us on our toes. Um, from the first I think I'm just going to start by saying your pre work really was a teaser for us. Mm. And so, pre, what was the term pre work? Pre work. You're just yeah. like pre interview, my questions I asked you. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit exciting. Some so, tell us. Sparked our interest. Yeah, it really did. What, what, what part specifically was like the spark of, I the, think of the, the interest? The spark was parents were hippies, born in a commune in Oregon, actually born in a bus. That sparked interest. It was strange. Yeah. I would yeah. have thought you would have heard that on <laughs> oh, like that's super normal. the majority of the right. podcasts, yeah. right. interviewees. But I'm wondering how the person that you are today was shaped by that. And yeah. that being the reality of your very early years. Yeah. So yeah. tell us about that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, hugely. 
let me just at least give some frame yeah, of context, context for, for that. Sure. <laughs> so confused just by bus. So grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. So maybe I've been in Nashville now for almost 15 years, but it still feels like a culture shock, you know, mm. being in the South. Mm-hmm. But growing, growing up in the Northwest was awesome and loved it. But my parents, yeah, they were hippies. And so some, most people don't have, like, I think when they think of hippies, they're like, uh, they've got some view, like they think of like maybe Woodstock or like yeah. grainy footage from like the Vietnam era or something like that. Right. But yeah. My parents, yeah, they were, they were like, my dad was in Vietnam and then he came back to San Francisco. And so he was like stationed in San Francisco when he got back. Oh, wow. But when he was stationed there, it was like summer of love, which mm-hmm. is like 1967. Mm-hmm. So. And he came back like very anti-war, like what was I doing over there? Yeah. Yeah. Came back. And so he immediately like lived on Haight Ashbury. Like he was mm-hmm. in the midst of like he he did it. Mm-hmm. He was like in the thing. And so he was in the commune and living the just like free love, peace, love, rock and roll, good vibes. And uh then he eventually moved up to Oregon and he met my mom in Eugene. And they were a part of, it, it was like this co-op where they planted trees. Okay. So just stay with me here. Yeah. Stay with me. Yeah. Like basically back, like back in the 60s and 70s, like there's great like reforestation in the Northwest. They mm-hmm. like paid these hippies and these big co-ops to go out and like plant all the trees. They do cheap labor. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So they planted trees, but they were basically, they were a part of this like commune that just they were out in the woods, like mm-hmm. planting trees. But they like lived and they'd live out there for like months and months and do the thing. And my parents, yeah, they lived like people lived in like tents and teepees, and it was like on top of this mountain. And but they, my parents lived in a bus. Hmm. Yep. And the name of the bus was the Starship. The Starship. Yeah, like of course it was. Of course. But little side story on that, which is awesome, is my dad actually had the bus down in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And when he was down there during, like, Kate ashbury in the late 60s, he had the bus, and uh, he knew Jefferson Airplane, okay? Mm-hmm. So, like, the band, Jefferson yeah. Airplane, right? And they would tour around in the bus. In, in the my, Starship. In, my, in the Starship, in my dad's bus. Is this, like, a school the, bus? What is it? It's like a like? school bus that's, like, it got converted like into... A camper bus. Like a tour bus. No, it's not like, like neither of you are right. <laughs> okay, okay. Yes. Let us project <laughs> yeah, more. Yeah. What else? What else? What other bus guesses? <laughs> no, it was a school bus that was... But it was like converted into a home, so it okay. had like hardwood floors yes. and like a you know wood burning stove, oh, wow. and there was like bunks in the back. They gutted and the it bus was like, and started over. Gutted the bus. Okay. It was like a sexy yeah, hippie school fun. bus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever your brain does with that, that's what it was. <laughs> I love it. So anyway, he toured. Wow. Like he would drive around Jefferson Airplane, like they'd be doing gigs around town and stuff. So Jefferson Airplane would break up late in the '60s, but then they would get reunited later. As Jefferson Starship. No way. Yeah, because of the bus. Because the, the bus. bus, the bus that little Brendan that you came was into later the world. born into. Wow. So I was born on the bus. That's awesome. And I awesome. lived there for the first, yeah, three, four years of my life. I so think. do you have memories like of being on the bus? I don't. Yeah, okay. it was kind of, it was, it was a little, it was. I was, I think, right at like three or four is when yeah. I moved out. And so I don't have a ton of like bus memories. Cognitively, when do our memories begin? 
Great question. I, do you know this as a therapist? I do know you this do. one. I'm actually, I'm actually a huge brain guy. Okay. So I love all that clinical like yeah. brain stuff. I really geek out and like enjoy that stuff. So we start making long-term memories at about three and a half. Mm. Okay. So I will do lots of timeline work with clients. Mm-hmm. And so I usually it's a good place to start. It's like, what's your first mm-hmm. cognitive memory? Mm. Like when are you when do you kind of first come online? Mm. And anything prior to like three, probably somebody told you yeah. or it's a picture you saw or that story has been told so many times and now you think yeah. it's an actual memory. But the truth is, is we start making long-term memories at about three and a half or four. So all that to say. Right pre, at that time. Pre-starship. Yeah, pre-starship. For Brandon. Yeah. yeah. But then, yeah, later. So parents... Moved out of the starship, and then my parents, they got divorced when I was really little. So mm-hmm. actually, they it was actually not even technically a divorce because they didn't technically get married because mm. they didn't believe in the institution of marriage, right? right? Yeah, of course. Right. Um, so they got separated. Okay. And so I grew up, yeah, sort of bouncing between mom and dad's house. And dad was kind of still doing the hippie life thing, and mom was sort of like went back to school and got her masters and like was doing the kind of straight and narrow mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know and now like works HR in a big <laughs> hospital you know it's like mom was like yeah I'm kind of done with that part of life but my yeah. dad was like I'm not mm. imagine that it was really weird having two very different schemas for what life was depending on where you were did you spend equal time or did you spend more time with mom totally yeah we I bounced around equal time mm-hmm. with both and it's true I really did have sort of these two different lives where I was like when I was with dad, I was like, these are my friends, and this is kind of what life looked like. And when I was with mom, it was a very different scene. And both of them got remarried or married for the first time pretty quickly after. So mm-hmm. there was always a new sort of, there was already a new step parent in the yeah. house. And the truth is, is, you know, is that, that little pre work that I did for you, as mm-hmm. I was telling you a bit about childhood, and I kind of wrote survival, survival, survival. Mm-hmm. It's like neither of my parents. They just didn't really, like, they were sort of in survival mm-hmm. on their own yeah. without kids. Mm-hmm. And that was clear. Like, they were both hustling to make ends meet and figure out relationships and figure out, you know, sort of how to do life. And so kids, I think at that point for them was, it was a lot. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, my brother and I, I think, had to really sort of find life and significance and value and all of that. Mm-hmm. The idea of being found, we had to kind of do that outside of the house. Mm, yeah. You know, and so that was sort of, I found most safety and belonging and was able to connect and experience real life really anywhere but my house. Yeah. Mm. That was where I did it, you know, and so. So from early childhood, where did you begin to find them if you couldn't find it at home? Well, in the beginning, it was the soccer field for me. Mm. Yeah, just being on a team and mm. being playing soccer was like, that was my home. It was like within the the chaos of the home and the back and forth and mom talking, bless you. Yeah, <laughs> bless you, Shiloh. Yeah. The dog just sneezed for you podcast listeners. Um, yeah, bouncing in between the two homes, mm. it was... They just didn't have time. Yeah. They they didn't have time for me, you Mm -hmm. know? And so I found soccer. And once I sunk my teeth into that and started feeling that sense of like watching other families Mm -hmm. and like, 
going on these soccer trips and getting to really experience connection and mm-hmm. and I think for me just that sense of significance. Yeah. Soccer ended up just becoming my sanctuary. Yeah. It was like I remember at the end of the school day, just I couldn't wait to get out and, and get on the soccer field because it was kind of like that was the one place where I knew who I was. Mm. Yeah. And everywhere else I was like, who am I? Like what what do I have to offer? You know? And then out there I was like, oh, this is who I am. Mm-hmm. I think it's maybe the one place I kind of liked myself. Mm, yeah, because you know? it was safe. Because it was safe. Yeah. yeah, and predictable. Yeah, I knew the you cast have to of work characters. So hard to survive. Yeah. yeah, and I mm-hmm. think within my home, there was just always adults in and out, mm-hmm. and it was just sort of it wasn't you know kid friendly. Mm-hmm. And so I think the soccer field was. Mm. You and got other, to be a kid. Yeah, I got to be a kid. Mm-hmm. And I really got to experience and see how other moms and dads did it. Mm-hmm. And I think that was big for me, was getting to kind of watch my friends and like, you know, be a part of their world. Yeah. I'm sure we'll bounce in your timeline quite a bit here. But fast forwarding to now, how is that shaping how you parent mm-hmm. and how you, I'm sure, are trying to create an environment where your kid doesn't need to have to wonder how to survive mm-hmm. and fight for that. How yeah. has that shown up for you as you've stepped into parenting and continue to do that? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. The thing, the, the thing that I was always seeking was significance. Yeah. I just mm-hmm. wanted to know that I was significant. Mm-hmm. That was it. What did significance mean as a kid? That I, that I mattered. Mm-hmm. That's what, it, that like my life and the things that I were, was doing was worthy of showing up to mm. and worthy of being involved in and asking questions. Yeah. And, you know, like when I was in second grade, you, do you guys remember Alf? Mm-hmm. Like Alf, the little, you know, mm-hmm. alien dude. Yeah. Alien life force, just so you know. Alien life force. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Alf, great genius. Uh, but I had this little Alf doll, and in second grade, I would bring him to school. Like, i just throw him in my backpack, whatever. And my teacher, sweet Mr. Peterson, what he did was he built this little desk for Alf that would sit on top of my desk. Oh, so imagine Mr. tiny... <laughs> I'm crying. That's beautiful. how kind and sweet is it? But yeah. but I'm sitting there in the back of the class with my desk, wondering if I'm significant, wondering yeah. if my life mattered. And here's mm. a second grade teacher, Mr. Peterson, who goes home and build, he doesn't just yeah. he built a desk. Like he took the pieces of wood and like he built it so the desk could sit on top of mine, mm. and Alf would sit there, and he put Alf on the roll sheet, and every single day. Brendan, here, Alf. And I would raise Alf's little hand, here. And, you know, like classes will have, like, the guinea pig, and we all take care of, you know, Mr. Tickles or whatever it is in the back of the class. Mm -hmm. Alf became the class's pet. pet. And so you had to sign him out to whose turn it was to take Alf out on recess. Wow. That was, like, a moment for me where I was like, I matter. Yeah. Yeah. Someone saw you. I brought Alf. Yeah. And this teacher did this thing, and it was like such a, it, it was the first time, I think, where I was like, mm. whoa, my life matters. Yeah. And I realized in that significance that I felt in that moment of like being a cool second grader who had, like, oh, I owned Alf. Like, Alf went home with me. Cool. I was like yeah. the badass. Like, yeah. yeah. And, uh, can we cuss? Is that oh, okay? Oh, we can cuss. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Thank you. Very nice. That, <laughs> but I went. The, but the thing why that was so meaningful was because I was craving it. Yeah. And I was, I wasn't getting any mm-hmm. of it. I didn't have the parents at that time mm-hmm. who could 
built the desk for Alf and let me know. I had to sort of go find that again Mm -hmm. outside of the house. And I love that it meant so much to you more than it would have meant to someone else because you were craving it. You needed it. And how beautiful that Mr. Peterson, is that his name? Mr. Peterson. Saw that and took an opportunity to say, I'm going to take interest in what this small child cares about. Totally. And not even just like, oh, how was Elf today? But like, take it a step farther and and elevate him and elevate you and help you bring, you know, some significance to your life. I love that. I also love that, like, I think as adults, I don't have kids, but I have a niece I'm very involved with. And Mm -hmm. I think we think about, like, all these ways. How are we going to impact them? Like, how am I going to mess them up? And how am I going to empower them? And all of the things. And I think I get stuck sometimes about, like, I don't know how to bring the greatest impact. And that was a hugely significant shifting point for you. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure he doesn't really remember that. And like, but he just was present and he saw you. He did something for you. And like how as grownups, whether with kids or just with other adults, like how we can just enter in and see somebody and say, like, just show up and be present with them. We don't have to do these grandiose things. Mm -hmm. But that's what, it tells people they matter. And that's what we all want. Right. Grownups like like kids and, and grown-ups. And like. then so then me now as a dad, yeah. mm-hmm. I am searching for every single moment mm-hmm. I have with Jackson, my, with my boy, to like make sure that he knows that he matters. Yeah. yeah. And to make sure that he knows his life is really significant. Mm-hmm. And we're so glad he's here mm-hmm. and alive. Mm-hmm. And every little thing that he does, not, you know, helicoptering, but really just going like, dude, like, I see that. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Like, who do you love? Alf? Amazing. Like, yeah. tell me more. And the talk about soccer being my safe place in my sanctuary, he loves soccer. Mm. And now Jax is like this little soccer, like, phenom and loves it. Truly, it was like one of those things where I was like, I'm not going to push it. Yeah, if you like yeah. soccer, cool, great. I'm not going to be his coach. I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Da, da, da. And like... He will wake me up at like six in the morning and be like, Dad, there's a Manchester United game on. Like, he'll wake me up. I mean, this kid like loves oh, soccer. So sweet. it is sort of this sweet, like, full circle thing. But I was going to say, how redemptive to see, to be able to facilitate opportunities for him to do that from a healthier place, from a I'm a loved place, and I'm not seeking affirmation from it, but just finding pure delight and joy from it. Yeah. That's so cool. Talk about full circle. So now enter in. My parents now, mm-hmm. as grandparents, yeah. now's this time when I really think whether they consciously know it or not, they are redeeming mm-hmm. my childhood yeah. in this way of pouring that attention and significance on Jack's. Mm-hmm. I love the design of that as grandparents. It's almost like they get, they get another shot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They get another shot to do it right, you know, and maybe – we will never have the conversations about my childhood and the yeah. blah, 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 but they can show me and they mm-hmm. show me and how they like love my son, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like really sweet. And that's hopeful. I yeah. love how, yeah, I love how life does that where you're just like, that's by design. And so now I get a chance to be who I needed mm-hmm. when I was young, mm-hmm. right? Like we get to sort of be that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the part that's been so surprising as a parent, you know, where you get to enter into that space Mm -hmm. and give your kids the things that you would wish you had, you know, but not just like toys, like significance. I'm wondering if you could speak to your experience in learning to reparent yourself, Mm -hmm. um, probably prior to having a kid or maybe while having a kid. But um, I feel like so many of us have parents who tried or are 
maybe we write them off as being like, oh, it's great because my parents maybe weren't physically abusive or whatever. But we have these parents that didn't know how to parent us. Mm -hmm. And that's okay to grieve and be really saddened by. Um, And like what – how did you kind of come to terms with parts of your narrative that you first understood that, that you weren't parented in the way that you needed to? And then how have you healed that? Or are you in the process of healing that? Yeah. I think that's one of the greatest gifts that like at onsite we get to do where we get to have enough space – Mostly what I'll do out there is lead intensives. Mm-hmm. And when you're, when you're out there leading intensives, you get three or four days just you one-on-one with a client. And so you get this space to really like let them completely unpack their whole journey, mm-hmm. their whole story. And they really get to, for the first time, name like, oh, yeah, that was hard as a kid. Right. Yeah. That yeah. was really hard that I didn't maybe get the significance that I was longing for. Mm-hmm. I didn't get the attention or approval or or love. And I had kind of didn't know it, but I had been sort of blaming myself this whole time that yeah. that was kind of I was the common denominator in that. Mm-hmm. And so you get to really walk slow with clients through that and unpack that. And then there's always this really beautiful shift that happens after you've done some of that inner child work. And they get to sort of go back in there and find that little five-year-old boy that's in there. And then you get to have this moment where, as a, the clinician, you get to put your hand on their shoulder and go like, and now you get to step into that space mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would it look like? What would you want to say to that little mm-hmm. boy, right? What does he need to hear? Mm-hmm. Because guess what? Mom and dad, those conversations are not going to happen. Yeah. Like that's just not yeah. how it works, mm-hmm. right? Now you get to step into all those gaps and all those voids. I get to be Mr. Peterson, mm. right, for myself. Mm-hmm. Like, and I get to build myself the little desk, you know. So mm. many of us wait for somebody else to rescue us. Yeah. We do. And I think that's human. We want yeah. that. We're, as a kid, we are creative for a parent to yeah. come alongside us. And if we don't have that, we fill the gaps. Yeah. And so yeah. I love that you're saying that at Onsite and in a lot of your work with clients, you teach people to go back and rescue themselves and be able to parent themselves, give their, give themselves that significance they've been craving. Totally. And mm-hmm. I think people don't understand what that even really, really looks like. Yeah. Because also I think there's it's just this. just kind of woo-woo when you say it. It gets a little wooey. Yeah. Woo-woo-woo-woo-wooey. Woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-
like myself, like the person that I have clawed and scratched and, you know, worked really hard to become. And then I get in these environments and I say things that I don't want to say. I get baited in ways I don't want to get baited. And I think there's also a bringing out of grace of, hey, like you were saying, it's a biological thing. My mind is trying to make sense of the situation. But just being... My husband and I have talked a lot about this, like just being graceful to ourselves. Hey, you did better than you did last time. You abated less than you were last time. Like just walking into it with grace. So if if that is you today and you came home from your Christmas break, like (laughs) who was I? I've been in therapy for two years and this just totally unraveled. Like Oh, totally. Yeah, it's just there'll sort of be this automatic response of like, do I need to survive still? Mm. Yeah. What do I need to be looking for that's coming around the next corner? Like, how Mm. else am I gonna get hurt again? Mm-hmm. Do I need to go find a soccer field? To right. go, you know, it's like right. it, it really is that stuff. Our our brain it just jumps right back onto that that old ski trail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I've been doing for forty years. Right, you know, and it's one of those things where you got to like that that. And I think that's the point where you know you're in your work and you're yeah. It's working is that you have the moment of awareness mm-hmm. and the understanding, and then you can even almost in real time can kind of recalibrate. And get grounded again, you know. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of this work, I was hesitant to even name some of these things. Like you've talked about naming, because I think for so long I connected, like if I name this out loud, then I'm blaming someone. That's right. Or it's scary to go in and challenge the ways that your childhood, the people, your environment, like didn't measure up or hurt, even wounding you. Like I feel even just guilty saying those statements. And I think a lot of the work that I have had to do in therapy is even getting to the point to say the fact that I was impacted mattered. Yeah. Because it there's a a dismissal that I that is ingrained in me of like it yeah. wasn't that bad. Yeah. I'll keep moving. Yeah. And what does it mean for my identity? What does it mean for my family system? What does it mean for who I am now, who I've become, if X, Y, or Z is true of you know, this thing. And so can you speak a little bit to that process of like the naming, the not blaming and being willing to do the work because we're not actually like awake if we're not doing that work, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's even for a lot of folks, I count myself lucky in that my childhood was so survival, survival that it was way easier Mm -hmm. to name. Yeah, yeah. Right, but for a lot of folks, you know <laughs> what I mean. I'm like, that's a really graceful way to view that. Yeah, like, yeah, it's a nice little, oh, nice little yeah, reframe. Blame it on the, the day job, but the <laughs> because I could look at it and I'm like, oh, okay, that's a spade. Like I can yeah. call a spade a yeah. spade because this is like, yeah, it's like the starship and the commune and like sure. the like that's a pretty easy one to kind of go like, okay, I can look at yeah. that and be realistic and like that was not good. Right. Like that wasn't a great place for kids. Mm-hmm. But for somebody who had like, it was okay. Like my parents were great. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like there were some things that were going on, but it's a little more nuanced than that. Like, well, yeah, my dad worked. I didn't, you know, he worked all the time, but like he provided for us. And like, yeah. so it was yeah. okay that I didn't get to know him. It was okay he didn't come to one soccer game because look what my dad did. So yeah. we have a tougher time naming mm-hmm. that like, yeah, but still mm-hmm. as a kid, you need to have your parents show up, right? Oh. So and good, I think great therapists can like spot that right away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That there's a self-protective thing happening, that there's a resistance. Mm-hmm. And you look at the timeline and everything is glowing and beaming and great. There's like not one thing 
that felt painful about their childhood. You know, you're like, huh, yeah, huh? okay, uh-huh. yeah. We're let missing me, something. Let me ask about, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I, and I will, like, really try to give them this space right. and empower them. Like, it's okay to name that, like, some of that, maybe, maybe even as the seven-year-old little boy, he couldn't name it. I can't articulate that. But you and I now, right. in mm-hmm. hindsight, right. as adults, we could look back and go, that maybe wasn't the home run. Mm-hmm. None of this is blame or shame. Yeah. None of it. I, I will often say like, yeah, it's not it's not blame and shame, but it's name and claim. Mm-hmm. Right? That's that we, good. Yeah, that we get to like, but still like, who is going to get to mm-hmm. name that for that little boy but you? Mm-hmm. Right? And a lot of times too, mm-hmm. we don't know. What did we need? Mm-hmm. What 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 is like the blueprint here of like what as kids we needed mm-hmm. to where it we're going to sort of prevent a lot of that showing up as adults? And I think that's really where leaning into those seven rights is really helpful, mm. right? Oh my gosh, I think it's so. I just think it's so. Talk about naming something. I think it's so beneficial and so effective. Yeah. Or all seven. Do you all seven? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I will tell clients, like, here's the great part about being in 2022 is like, we just know. Yeah. We know now. Like, we've got the evidence-based. We've got the research. We can point to it physiologically, biologically. Like, we can name, like, here's the stuff in our development, Mm -hmm. emotionally, psychologically, that we needed, Mm -hmm. that if this wasn't going on, Back here from zero to 18, right, when we're really in those, like, big developmental years and, f- and, and, and creating this person who we're going to be, if we don't have these seven things happening, and they, I don't know, the seven rights, I don't know, I think that was a, a Bill Loki thing mm-hmm. who he actually created the actual seven rights. But it's, I, I love getting to do that with clients. So here's the seven things that you need and that we needed then to really – help and set us up well to prevent a lot of this sort of like sideways mm-hmm. stuff happening in our adult life. Mm-hmm. Like number one is you have the right to be. Mm-hmm. Just that we're glad you're here. Like mm-hmm. you have the right to take up space. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many folks, part of their narrative is like, yeah, my parents wanted two kids and then I came really late. It was like, oops, I was an accident. All of a sudden that is part of your narrative. Yeah. That like. Yeah. You weren't really wanted. Mm-hmm. You were kind of an accident, right? Or even, man, we really wanted a boy, but we got you, and so we were happy. Like, even that that part the of being the family language. narrative yeah. is not like, I am so glad mm-hmm. that you are a girl and you are who you are. You have the right to be, mm-hmm. to take up space in the world. Mm-hmm. That's where those mirror neurons show up when we're little, where yeah. we have people literally mirroring in front of us. Like, I get to... You know, in front of my little boy, like, wow, you know what you just did? You just did this thing, and it was so awesome. And when I mirror that for him, he's literally knowing, like, whoa, I exist. Yeah, the way I am is good. The way I am is good. Mm -hmm. I have the right to that, to take up space. That's really, really good that I know Mm -hmm. that I am wanted, and I have the right to be, just to be in this world. Like, I deserve to be here. There's Mm -hmm. no accidents. There's no, like, this is by design. Mm -hmm. Like, again, Mr. Peterson— and building the desk for me, mm-hmm. for Alf, it was like, you have the right to be here. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you're in this class. Mom will make space for you to show up how you want to show up. That's right. Like, I think it goes beyond, okay, it's fine that you're here. I think it's the difference between, like, diversity and inclusion or 
diversity, inclusion, and equity. Like, yeah. you're included, you're a part of it, but we're not going to give you the same equal treatment that, say, we would have. Yeah. Under my, uh, conscious or unconscious, if you're a boy or a girl. Yeah. Yeah, it's like allowing versus celebrating. Yeah, that's Yeah, good. yeah. So See, just letting Hannah, it be here. Come on. Yeah. You're so good. So, it's so good. Hey, friends. Hannah McKenzie here. We are interrupting this conversation because throughout the conversation several times with Brandon, we've mentioned intensives and mm-hmm. the intensive experience. And an intensive is an offering that we have here at OnSite. And let's face it, the word intensive can sound kind of intense. intense. <laughs> um, but really what it is, is it's just an opportunity for you to connect with a therapist, either one-to-one or in your partnership or with your family, um, to do some dedicated work to yeah. issues or goals um, that you have. And it just kind of allows you an extended space if you need some breakthrough. Yeah. I know for me, a lot of times in one-on-one weekly therapy, you can only get so far in an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love my weekly therapy. I love my therapist. But sometimes you just need a little bit more time and dedication towards something. And that's why I love our intensives. Yeah. And I'm so excited that we're now offering a new way for you to experience um, an on-site intensive. So we are now offering three-day online intensives, and they really do provide that opportunity for you to have one-on-one time with a therapist to dig deep um, and to stay in that extended time of healing and exploration and discovery. Yeah, I really think it helps you look back to understand how you got to where you are, Mm -hmm. look at your present to understand where you are, and then look to your future to say, hey, how do I build towards the life I actually want? Yeah, so from the comfort of your home, you can have a customized and unique experience that really does meet your needs. Yeah, and I love that we're offering these online because A, it meets people where they're at. Mm-hmm. Um, B, it doesn't have to totally disrupt everything. It can You can pause in your life but not have to uproot and travel and all the things that come along with that. So I love that we're offering that. And it is a much lower cost option yeah. um, than some of our other in-person programming. And so for people that need that opportunity, it's just a really, really good option. Yeah. So now we're offering those weekly. And if you want to learn more, you can connect with one of our admissions team at 800-341-7432. Or you can even give them an email at admissions at onsiteworkshops.com. Now let's jump back into the interview. Where that shows up as an adult, if we don't get that, I have a tough time making space for myself. Mm -hmm. Mm. I have a tough time finding my voice in a room. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't trust it. Because I don't think my voice really is supposed to be here, Mm -hmm. wants to be here, that people want it. Mm -hmm. And so I have a really difficult time making room for myself Mm -hmm. in a a circle of people, Mm -hmm. which turns into like, yeah, then medicating and self-destructing. So right to be, that's number one. Mm -hmm. Second one, the right to have needs, that we get to all have needs and that our needs are okay and that we have caretakers. They know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. They have the emotional ability to take care of our needs. Mm And you can't take care of someone else's needs if you're not sure or acquainted with your own needs. If your needs are okay. Is my sadness okay Mm -hmm. in this house? Mm -hmm. Is it okay if I get really big and have a big anger reaction? Or is Mm -hmm. it go to your room, Mm -hmm. come back when you've cooled off? Mm -hmm. That's kind of telling me my anger's not okay. Mm -hmm. My needs actually are not okay, Mm -hmm. right? Or even like joy, like, oh my gosh, dad, let me tell you about school, Mr. Peterson. It's like, just okay, like tell me at dinner or whatever. It's like... If our needs get dismissed right. and I'm learning and watching that I have my caretakers, my two people in the world, they don't have emotional capability mm-hmm. of a container for my needs, I will then end up in my adult life thinking that if I don't have needs, 
and my needs are not okay, I must be here to meet your needs. Mm-hmm. Right? And then mm-hmm. so now I will go unconsciously in life mm-hmm. thinking that my needs are sort of shelve them and then let me take care of your needs mm-hmm. and then I'll be okay. Right? I think number three, so the right to be, the right to have needs, the right to separate, the right that I know that, woof, that I am okay going out and exploring, mm-hmm. right? And even though mom's like, the world is unsafe, you can't trust anybody, you're not spending the night, you're not going to you home right after school. Ultimately, if I am learning that everything around me is unsafe, I cannot trust the world, mm-hmm. I cannot trust myself, mm-hmm. right? And so if I don't know that I'm able to separate, that can end up becoming a real problem mm-hmm. in my adult life. And then I have the right to do that. Not like you're going to do what the family does. Mm-hmm. This is what's going on. Like you can't go, you don't separate. You don't go to that college. Yeah. You don't go to that church. You you stay a part of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. You don't get to separate. And that's attached to your belonging. Like you don't belong yeah, if you yeah. don't do this. Yeah. For me, this right to separate really hits home for me uh. because there was, it was mixed messaging. It was like, we're so excited. You are such a high achiever. Go out and see the world. Do your thing. We're so proud of you. And then also simultaneously getting messages of when you leave, you hurt us. Mm. Um, you, I'm sad every time you're gone. I yeah. just miss you. Yeah. You know, and there was just this, so far as a child figuring out like, what am I supposed to do? Am I safe? And I don't belong. I'm not like you. I remember at one point saying, I don't fit here. Mm. Like, I literally don't fit and I don't belong. I know I'm loved, but I don't feel like I fit because my belonging is attached to staying. Yeah. The funny one on the separate, too, a lot of people will go, oh, well, I don't really resonate with that one. My parents were fine with me doing whatever. And I'll go, that's actually kind of the same thing. There's two sides of that coin, too, with, like, were my parents, they were like, there were no rules. It was like, whatever, leave, come home, like, don't come home tonight, come home when the streetlights come up, whatever. Yeah, no. So it was like I had too much right to separate, where mm. there's still, it's still the same message, like, I'm not being protected. Right. Yeah. Right, like, my life isn't has enough value to where you're like, well, wait, tell me where you're going, like, what's going on? Like, I don't, we don't get to actually safely explore the world. Mm-hmm. I get to go explore, but then mm-hmm. I just get to get into whatever. Well, to separate, you have to have something that is together. And, like, it sounds like you didn't have that mm-hmm. togetherness. You just, nice. you just nice. were separate. That's yeah, good. That's right. That's right. So that one for me resonated, but in such a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where interesting. Where, like, my parents just didn't care if I left, you know. Yeah. And then it starts kind of getting into when, like, we're more in the adolescent, young adult thing, where it's mm-hmm. like we have the right to autonomy, mm-hmm. right? The right to, like, our own truth, mm-hmm. which coming to the South, that was a big cultural shift for me. Where, right. Like, coming from the the... The Northwest is very this like individualist sort of culture. We're here; it's very collective. Like, here, like there's right. this is the truth, guys. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> if you want to go explore other truth, right, you're not going to be a part of this family. Yeah, you know. So you do not have the right to your own truth. Mm-hmm. And that word even sort of becomes this big buzz, like you know, like truth, like find the truth. And especially in like maybe some evangelical circles or whatever, there's a yeah. sense of like. No, no, no. There's an objective, the ultimate truth, yeah. and anything outside of that is sin or w- mm-hmm. whatever it might be. Yeah. But I will quickly learn to not trust myself again if mm-hmm. I am seeking to find the truth that my parents are okay with and that they actually want, as opposed to 
tell me about you. Mm-hmm. Like, tell me about what, what do you want to do? What mm-hmm. do you like? What feels true for you? Because mm-hmm. mom and dad think this, but Jax, tell me, like, what's it like for you, right? Yeah. So there's the kind of what's true for us, and there's what's true for you. And if we don't know that we have the right to that and how mm-hmm. critical that is to know that, like, the thing inside you, your voice, that feels true for you, but maybe not for us, that's really, really important to bring that thing out. Mm-hmm. And that that's safe here with us. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's celebrated, right? And we love that you have your own truth. And none of that scares me. Mm-hmm. Even if it's so different from mom and dad, mm-hmm. that that's okay that you have that. Yeah. So those are, I think those are kind of two. There's like autonomy, agency, the right to your truth. I think that's five. And then the last two are um the right to your own spirituality, mm. which is a biggie. Again, yeah, that's, biggie. that that was great, you know, growing up in West Coast and that sort of culture. It's like, yeah, cool, spirituality, do what you want. But here, there's yeah. a real sense of like, yeah, you don't really have the right to your own spirituality. Right. You have the right to this one. Mm-hmm. And if it's not this one, there's not a week that goes by in my office where I'm not exploring wounds mm-hmm. from the church and wounds from family system where mm-hmm. – you could not have your own spirituality. You had to have either ours or there was something wrong with you. It's almost a timeline until you have ours and a lot of structures. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And at the end, that quickly gets manipulated mm-hmm. and some sideways stuff can begin to happen mm-hmm. as parents think we're protecting our kids by right. leading them to this spirituality yep. and this truth. When the cool thing about culture now is at least it's getting celebrated, the fact that like, oh, yeah, there are bigger belief systems and it doesn't all look the same. For me, it was getting to kind of figure out maybe the God of my childhood is not the God of my understanding mm-hmm. now, you know, and mm-hmm. being able to like understand those are those are two different chairs. Yeah. I love getting to explore that with clients now too. Yeah. And like, if we don't have that freedom to explore, it does just turn to bitter anger Um like, it just stays such a narrowed view. I heard a quote once of somebody saying, like, if, if our idea of God isn't always expanding and evolving, like, we're getting it wrong. Yeah. And I think about how in yeah. my own spiritual journey, I had a certain set of beliefs, and then I hated that set of beliefs because it wounded me. Yeah. But then I called it all wash, and it's right. not all wash. Yeah, and I'm, totally. like, in the process now of reclaiming some of it and saying, yeah. like, what pieces actually did I believe as a human? What do I want to believe in the future? Yeah. Um, not, like, what was I forced to believe or what was assumed at my belief system? Yeah. Yeah, you know, totally. but if we don't, for a while, I thought it was just better to turn it off. Yeah. yeah. But I didn't take up that sixth right of spirituality. Right. Like I just shut it off because totally. that was painful. And how many yeah. spirituality? And so yeah. how I've tried to learn to like actually lean back into that right and yeah. reevaluate. Yeah. Like what is good for me now? What's serving me now? Yeah. And how my life is so much better for it. The right to love and passion mm. is the last one. That we have the right to love someone and be loved. And hopefully we got to have that modeled for us where we got to see people that loved each other and were passionate about something constructive, Mm -hmm. you know, but we get to, the hope is that we understand that we have the rights, especially early on to accept that part and to bring that part Mm -hmm. out, you know, and we get to like love hard, especially, you know, when we're in high school and we're in those developmental years, it's like, Go for it. Yeah. Love. Like, be in love. Do it. You know? And, like, be passionate. People will often come in and there's this, this sense of, you know, the one that got away. Mm-hmm. And, like, that first one that 
we've your first love that went and you're like, why did that one feel so different? Mm. Why did that one feel like there was so it was so heavy and so hard to get over, and that was such a special and unique relationship. Many of us think that about like our first love. Yeah. And my theory is that I think because we are closer to being childlike and we mm. are back to that factory setting, that I am actually more myself in that yeah. relationship that's not as self-protected. Mm. So that that's a big one. And that's especially if we saw, if we got to see caretakers who really loved each other yeah. and I got to see that that passion and love wasn't dangerous and bad. Right. When you said that, the thought I had is how do we model that for our children? Yeah. The like passion for life, passion for a partner, passion for friendship, passion for other people. And I also thought, how do we model that like for passion for what makes us come alive too? Like, I think that's something that at the end of the day, I hope my daughter walks away knowing that I love her dad to an enormous amount. Um, He's my favorite human that we are to, we have a a sign above our bed that says, all because two people fell in love and decided to work really hard at staying that way. Mm. And I hope that's what she takes, like that you can- bear yourself and make yourself vulnerable to another person and like be a team in that. And two, I also hope that she grows up seeing a mom who was fully alive. Yeah. Because I think that's something that our children deserve to see is that us passionate about something and pursuing something that that makes us come alive that's not them, honestly. Like I want them, I want her to feel like she is so loved and so wanted, but also that I'm a whole human so that she can walk into that herself. That's right. Yeah, so, that's that's yeah. so good. That's so huge. And I'm sure hard. she will. Yeah, so. and especially our kids get to know, too, that there's a risk to that. Mm-hmm. There's a risk yeah, to, like, being that alive and really coming with every single part of you because we do. We risk getting hurt, you yeah. know, which we do. Mm-hmm. And we're okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay mm-hmm. to be hurt. I love that um, you are alluding to both in the spiritual sense and the human sense and the job sense, all of it, like alluding to finding yourself. Yeah. And kind of in the prep questions we asked you before the podcast, you spoke a lot about finding yourself, finding purpose, finding meaning, finding your partner, finding Mm -hmm. your kid. What would you say to someone that is on that journey of finding themselves? What would you encourage them to lean into maybe? I think a lot of times we look for ourselves in a lot of different places or in different people or by doing different stuff. Yeah. What would be your encouragement to someone who's trying to find themselves right now? I think my big encouragement is to take a look at what you're already doing. Hmm. Like what in your life right now is organic. And it's just, you don't have to try. It's just something that that you are, that feels like you in your Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And let's start there. Right. Because I do think we'll like look at something and try to like achieve something out Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. And I love just the adage of like, start where you are, Mm -hmm. you know? And even as people look, take that question a step further, like, how do you find your people? How do you find your community? Mm -hmm. Who are the people already in your life right now? Mm -hmm. Who are your neighbors? Who are the people that you organically Mm -hmm. run into at the coffee shop and they're at the Bob Goff retreat and they're working it on site? Whatever it is, it's like, let that part of the design, that part of the organic, natural thing that's mm-hmm. already happening in your life and be okay with what that is and mm-hmm. be curious about that as opposed to kind of trying to formulate and create something that's out here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's just find the thing that's already here mm-hmm. and let's work with that thing, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that is a good place to start. Yeah, it's good. And I think for a lot of folks that involves 
my clients will always say, like a big term I use is just like gather data. Mm-hmm. This is just a time for you to gather data, mm-hmm. you know? And so what should I do? Should I get the job? Should I, da, 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 da? should I get the divorce? Should I date this person? Should I? It's like right now it feels like a good time just to be gathering data. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a time to make a decision. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times I think we just need more data to figure out what is the next right move for you, mm-hmm. you know, especially in the journey of self. Mm-hmm. So what that involves in gathering data, it's like go to therapy. Yeah. Gather mm-hmm. data about yourself. Good data. Because whatever you're telling yourself up here, again, I'm a big brain guy. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm that way because I know that all of these processes in the brain, although awesome and there to protect us from pain, mm-hmm. actually do us a huge disservice because they lie to us. Mm-hmm. And our brain usually is kind of a jerk to us, mm-hmm. you know, and like we're really, really hard on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so a big part of that too, as you gather data, is like don't gather data about what your mind is telling you and what your brain is. Gather data about what your body's telling you, mm-hmm. about what's happening in your heart and spirit. Yeah. When you show up to a place, do you <gasps> freak out and get sunk and you're like in this kind of survival response? Probably not a good place for you. Yeah. Yeah. Do you show up at places where you're like, oh, I just relax and I've got a smile on my face. Mm-hmm. I just love, that's probably a better place for you. Mm-hmm. But if I go off what my mind is telling me, that's going to give me some pretty wonky information. So let's figure out how to kind of flush that yeah. and kind of get to this thing that's providing good sources of data for you, which is really here, mm-hmm. right? I've got my hand over my heart. Mm-hmm. But it's that's really the place that's going to give you awesome data. And then in here, too, in your gut. Yeah. But a lot of us don't know how to read that data. Mm-hmm. No. We're good at reading this, you know, in yeah. our mental place. I think we are taught not to read it. I mean, most of us are taught mind over it. matter or, yeah. like, you know, like there's – we were taught that our bodies are dangerous. Their liabilities. Our hearts lead us mm-hmm. in the wrong direction. That's right. They're that's scary. Right. We can't yeah. trust our emotions. Yeah. And so I think that's a lot of the work we do at Onsite. It's teaching people to get back to that. Like, yeah. your emotions are your teacher. They're your guide. Yeah. They're safe. They tell you what's happening. Your body knows what's happening. And you're, like, yeah. so – And you know when we did that best? When we were kids. When we were yeah. kids. <laughs> My son is so good – he just is, he's perfectly self. Mm-hmm. If you're mean to him and you take away his toy, he gets sad yeah. and he shows it yeah. and he trusts it. He doesn't question like, should I be getting mad right now? What's that going to look like? Mm-hmm. He just is fully congruent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's fully himself. I was having a conversation recently about kind of about what does onsite do? Like what, what, what yeah. is like, what is actually the work we're doing at onsite? Mm-hmm. And I think the work that's happening out there is we're bringing you back to mm-hmm. the factory settings. Mm, that's good. You know, it's like I'm a big I, I'm a big uh, software update analogy guy because <laughs> yeah. I think it's a language that like everybody knows because we get the like sure. annoying. Push notification on our Oh, phones. my gosh. The, like, dumb little red icon that's yeah. like, you need a software update. You know? Yeah. I'm I don't like, have oh, enough yeah. room or space. Again? You know? And I'm like, <laughs> there's, but. There's an analogy there. There's not enough space to update. What? Yeah. Seriously. Bugs oh. and fixes? Ooh. What bugs and fixes do I if have? If I ignore them, will my yeah. phone be okay? But that's the thing is, like, <laughs> yeah. I will tell folks, too. It's yeah. like, we do, we get a software early on. Mm-hmm. We've got sort of factory settings. Yeah. Right? And then as we, like, are not getting the seven rights and we're trying to adapt and figure it out, we're learning software. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us are picking up software that we have not updated Mm -hmm. since we were in middle school. Right. And so now I'm trying to be in a marriage and be a parent and 
find my calling in life, and yet I'm running off the software yeah, still of that bugs. I adapted off mm-hmm. my parents' mm-hmm. plan. You know, and so really what we're doing is we're kind of, mm-hmm. as we go to onsite, there's a sense of like, hey, so what we're going to do is like, I'm going to let you know that there is a factory settings button here. Yeah. And I'm going to let you know that when you were five, that was the blueprint of when you were perfectly who you were mm-hmm. and you trusted self. And that iPhone was the best. Mm-hmm. And you've picked up a lot of different versions of that later on. But mm-hmm. by the end of this time, we are going to bring that back down to your factory settings and it's going to operate beautifully. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't do the software update and you don't do it, it's true. What mm-hmm. starts happening? Apps mm-hmm. start crashing, memory runs out, my battery goes down so quick. And mm-hmm. I could show you how that looks in your life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your battery dying and apps crashing and mm-hmm. you being frustrated and just, mm-hmm. you got to kind of, and to get the update, you got to take the phone out of use mm-hmm. and you got to plug it in, which is exactly what the work that we get to do at onsite through those intensives is mm-hmm. we get to kind of take the phone out of use and we get to sort of plug you back into the charger. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what, although we don't know that's what, where we will find life and what we need, that really is it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so then I get to connect to that. Mm-hmm. I get to see factory settings every day at my house. Yeah. When my little boy at breakfast time comes up to me and he goes, Dad, do you want to dance? <laughs> right? Like, he's just like, he wants to move. He yeah. wants to dance. He wants Why to be not? in his body. Yeah, he's just like perfectly self. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I have to, my old software, I'd want to be like, no, you got to go to work. And like, you could get sweaty. Like, someone <laughs> could look through the window. But if I'm like, push pause for a minute and mm-hmm. I go back to my factory settings, mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah. I do want to dance. Let's dance. I do. And when, the moment I let myself do it and... Taylor Swift is blaring Shake It Off, and we're just acting like fools in our kitchen. Yeah. I feel mm-hmm. alive. That's so good. That's such a beautiful description of what we do at Onsite. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really grateful because I think that makes it feel so much more approachable. Yeah. And I think so much of this work can feel like, can feel really scary. can feel really vulnerable. It can feel like there may not be a reward on the other end of it. Yeah. And I think that's one of those things, too, where it's like, it is tough to articulate that and tell someone about it. It's yeah. one of those things where it's like, you just have to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You just have to be able to, like, step into it and experience it. And, but understand that, like, we're not as far off as you think we are. Yeah. Right. That's the, a good word. You know, the work doesn't have to be quite as complex and dynamic and grueling as you might think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it might actually just be a little simpler. It might be about going and running around with horses for the afternoon or whatever. Yeah. And I think that's the part that, Onsite's awesome because it gives you this amazing space to go do all of that and facilitate it. And as therapists and clinicians, we're out there. That's the experience for us too, mm-hmm. which is why we get to go out there and we love that. I get mm-hmm. to go and be a part of this community and get to go. Mm-hmm. I get to kind of go be a little kid too. Mm-hmm. I love that. I, don't, I, don't, I think that was one okay. of the most surprising things for me in my Living Centered program experience was, I think you expect it to be heavy and scary. And it can be those things. Like there's moments where I was super overwhelmed and there's moments where I was bawling my eyes out. But I have not laughed that much in my entire adult life. Like I have not played that much. I have not had, not slept. It was something we hear from clients (laughs) over and over and over is that they've never slept so well in their life. Oh, yes. Because they were resting. They were safe. They were back to that factory setting of being a kid. Kids sleep hard. Yeah, I haven't laughed or slept as well as 
Yeah. I did them when I was at onsite. And how that's nothing magical about no. onsite's campus in that way, but it's just creating the space and opportunity space and to do that. Yeah. And that's like a challenge I want to continue for myself of like, how am I finding moments of that? Something we say at the end of a program is that onsite may not feel like the world to you, but you may feel like onsite to the world. Yeah. And how yeah. are you integrating those those things I can do? Yeah. I just have to choose it. So, Bren, as we are kind of closing out this interview with you, one of the questions that we ask a lot is, what is one practice that keeps you centered? The one lately for me has been reflection Mm. and has Mm. been really writing down my thoughts and been having my experience and having my week and pain and, you know, everything goes along with my week, but then ultimately like really leaving a space where I get to reflect on it mm-hmm. and I get to metabolize it and I get to process it. And so mm-hmm. it just brings my nervous system and everything mm-hmm. back to this like very centered place. Cause I'm just taking the stuff that's inside mm-hmm. and I'm like just giving it a space to go. Mm-hmm. I will, even with clients, I will tell them session number one, like, Hey, let's let's have our sessions this will be great like this will be a hopefully a really important hour of your week but if you can although this is a significant time it's really the hour after mm-hmm. the session mm. that if you could commit to just creating a space after our session to like really reflecting and seeing give give, give the plane a place mm-hmm. to land mm-hmm. yeah because my fear would be that we'll have our hour of our session and then you'll jump right back into work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think if you can, you'll be kind of doing a disservice and an injustice. And I think although our time is significant, it might actually be the time mm-hmm. right after the session that's even more significant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that idea of like reflection. And so I turned 40 this year. It's exciting. Yeah. And so, and of course, as a four in the Enneagram, it's like all I want to do is reflect. But (laughs) this was like a real big year to want to do that. And so I wrote this thing about turning 40. I was sitting on Venice Beach when I wrote this. And so I was, this was the ocean is a big, big place for me to do that. So just a little context. I turned 40 yesterday. It feels like the last 10 years went by so fast. I did a lot in that decade. I became a dad, I changed my calling, and I found my tribe of people. I slowed down, I gave myself grace, and then I gave myself more grace. I let go of the God of my adolescence, and I found the God of my understanding. That God is way nicer to me. Mm. (laughs) I tilled the soil. Ripped out a few weeds, I watered and watered, and I let the sun shine on me and my life, and I watched new life come. And my garden is full, Mm. full of compassion and grace and safety and freedom, full of friends and family and forgiveness, mostly forgiveness of myself. My garden is full, not perfect, but full. Fullness goes high, but it also goes low. And sometimes the low can feel like doubt and fear and feeling like a fraud. But some days the low is more like roots and soil, deep roots in the soil. I did that this last decade too. Roots so deep that some days it was overwhelming. I did a lot in my 30s. Of course, as I sit here and write about turning 40, 
the four in me, so 40 backwards is zero four, right? Like, anyway, the four in me wants to look back and not forward. I think I used to be afraid to look forward. Mm. I found my safety in looking back, but I'm not afraid to look ahead now. For the first time, it feels safe. I like what I see. Mm. I like who I see. My heart is so full in this moment on this beach, looking out at the ocean, when all I can hear is the sound of the waves, and all I can see is the sun and the water, and all I can feel is the sand under my feet and the warmth of sun on my skin, I see God. I see myself exactly as it is made to be, and it is good, and it deserves this moment. Yeah. That was so beautiful. Reflection. I think it's, it was such a, a great bookend on a lot that we talked about today. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of yeah. was. I think that was why I wanted to run to the car and grab it. I so think the reflection, yeah, shows all the things you've worked so hard to find. Yeah. Like yeah. that depth mm-hmm. that you, are, that you the Deep last roots. decade, has helped you find. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for saying that. I think mm-hmm. you're right. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.